Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the Ontario government brings down a $204 billion budget. We'll have oodles of analysis. The federal environment minister takes a shot across Doug Ford's bow on the Greenbelt. And Doug Ford loses a cabinet minister and an MPP as Marilee Fullerton quits politics. It's Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. So let's get to it. JMM, can I get a little wistful on you here? Uh, Absolutely. Is that allowed? I like wistful, Steve. Okay, here we go. Last Thursday, of course, budget day in Ontario. It's so different now. I don't know which budget this was for me. Something like, I don't know, my 38th, 39th, 40th, I forget. But something has changed in that there is no more budget lockup the way it used to be. It used to be that we all got corralled, you know, in this big room, McDonald Block, Bay and Wellesley, downtown Toronto. You read the budget. If you had questions about the most arcane stuff, which I'm willing to bet you often did, (laughs) there were myriad officials around to answer those questions, and then came COVID. So then we had to have virtual lockups where the officials briefed us online, and of course, uh, that's pretty much stuck. Now it's just little old me alone in my office all day long, no lockup. Much less fun. That's my wistful tune for the day, I guess. Yeah, I've now done... uh not actually, it might now be ten budget lockups because some years have had more than one budget. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I miss the I, I miss the energy of being in that admittedly kind of bleak windowless room <laughs> <laughs> at McDonald Block. Um, I, I, as you say, I, I imagine it will not be coming back. But uh, you know, there is an argument. Uh, you know. The tradition was you locked up all the reporters uh, until 4 p.m. when the finance minister gets up to speak because this is market-moving information. Allegedly. Uh, uh, allegedly, <laughs> exactly. I don't know. If we're not going to even do the budget lockup anymore, maybe the government should think about rescheduling the budget speech. Like, have the finance minister give it at 9 a.m. in the morning at the start of the, the day. Let people chew over the numbers. I mean, trading is kind of always happening somewhere. So what does what does the close of a market mean even anymore? Um I don't think I've seen a thing in decades that might have moved the markets at all when it comes to the release of an Ontario budget. So you may be onto something. Well, exactly. And so I I think, you know, there's an argument to do it. I don't suspect that the government will do it because one of the things that a lockup, virtual or otherwise, lets the government do is exercise an immense amount of control over the first 24 hours or so of uh, a very politically important moment for any government. You have got that right. Just a reminder, everybody, we're happy to get your comments at OnPolitics at tvo.org. That is the email address to reach us, onpolitics at tvo.org. JMM, what do we got up this week? Uh, Let me uh, fish around in the mailbag here. (laughs) Uh, We have an email from listener Ben who writes, Hi, Steve and JMM. Absolutely love the podcast. Certainly it is a highlight to my Tuesday. Uh, Thank you, Ben. Uh, I'm a physician who works in Northern Ontario. Steve, you were the chancellor at my graduation, by the way. I've always wondered when people put their hat into the ring for an election, I'm always a bit surprised to discover after the fact that they are physicians because the doctor label is not applied. I suppose the same applies for medical members of the armed forces and their rank, anyone with a PhD, etc. Is this a rule so as to provide an equal playing field? Is this tradition? Is this unique to Canada? Or is this a Commonwealth norm? 
All the very best, Ben. Well, Ben, great to hear from you and glad to hear you're working in the North because, uh, well, that was the point of the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, after all. Get doctors educated in the North so they will stay in the North. So I'm glad you have. Um, There, of course, have been medical doctors as members of the legislature for ages at Queen's Park. In fact, once upon a time, you pretty much couldn't be the Minister of Health unless you were a doctor. Imagine that. I think that I'm trying to think back now. I think that changed during during the Bill Davis years in the 70s and 80s at Queen's Park when guys like Frank Miller and Larry Grossman, two names from the past, some people may remember, uh, they became health ministers despite not being medical doctors. Uh, there is a medical doctor at Queen's Park right now, Dr. Adil Shamji, the liberal from Don Valley East. Um, I actually checked with Shamji's office last week about this. And in fact, when they call the rolls for votes, he's always referred to as Mr. Shamji. Ben is right. He's referred to as Mr. Shamji, not Dr. Shamji. And that's according to protocol. And I've actually always been interested in the fact that um, the federal MP from Halderman, Norfolk, who ran for the conservative leadership a couple of times, people may remember her name, Leslin Lewis. She always calls herself Dr. Leslin Lewis. And whenever she's been on the agenda, she's always asked to be introduced as Dr. Leslin Lewis. And she is not a medical doctor. She's got a Ph.D. in law. So we've kind of irritated her because we do not introduce doctors on the agenda as doctors unless they're medical doctors. Uh, so we always just introduced her as Leslin Lewis. Anyway, that's that. Yeah, that's the way it's always been. They don't get called doctor this, doctor that when they vote. It's just Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or whatever. You know, uh, as reporters, at least, we could say, you know, the media has uh, a, a lot of norms that we adhere to. Uh, you know, the, the case of uh, non-medical doctorates, uh, that's a, a, an old rule that I was taught in J school and, and uh, we mostly adhere to uh, here at TVO. Um, you know, there are others, though. I, uh, one I've written about before, when uh, an election starts, we usually stop referring to the premier as the premier mm-hmm. and we start referring to them as, if, in this case, it would be the progressive conservative leader, Doug Ford. Even though, and we've talked about this before, right, from a legal perspective, uh, he remains the premier until well after the election, uh, even if he loses. So, uh, you know, we are arguably misleading the public there, but we do it out of an attempt to try and uh, not show partiality or favor by, you know, seeming to elevate one candidate over the others. I don't think that's quite what's happening here with the doctorate rules, but that's an example of some of the stuff we do. It is the fiddler of the roof policy, which is to say tradition, tradition. That's why they do it. It's tradition. Anyway, stop me from singing, please, and tell everybody once again where they can get us. Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show or perhaps make singing requests, uh, you can email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. I know the singing request they've got. Please stop singing. That's the singing (laughs) request we're going to get. Now on to issue one. JMM, have you ever sat down and asked yourself, if I had $200 billion burning a hole in my pocket, how would I spend it? Space program. That's my answer, (laughs) and it's always going to be if you're talking about that kind of cash. Do you think you could build the Starship Enterprise for $200 billion? I am willing to try. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what we're getting at here, dear listener. That was Peter Bethlen-Falvey's task last week. And just before we touch on some of the new programs he's introduced, uh, John Michael and I are going to go through some of the important economic numbers that influence the government's decisions on the budget, starting first and foremost with economic growth. Because, of course, uh, you got to know how much you're going to grow in order to figure out how much you can spend. 
Economic growth for the year 2023 that we're in right now is expected to be a paltry 0.2%. Next year, up to 1.3%, getting more along the lines we used to see um, in 2025, where they expect economic growth at 2.5%. So that's getting closer to where we have normally been over the past many years. One of the surprising developments in the budget was the plan to balance the province's books three years ahead of schedule. Uh, the fiscal year that is just ending, 2022-23, uh, is reporting a $2.2 billion deficit. Uh, the fiscal year that will just begin on April 1st uh, is expected to have a $1.3 billion deficit. By 2024, you get to a $200 million surplus. And then uh, by 2025, the, the last full fiscal year before the election, I will uh, maybe remind our listeners, uh, they are projecting a $4.4 billion surplus. Hmm. Inflation has, of course, been a miserable problem over the past few years. Rates rising to numbers we haven't seen in 40 years. But the budget very much suggests we are going to get back to, quote unquote, normal over the next two years. Inflation this year, they anticipate, will run at 3.6% on average. But then next year, 2024, down to 2.1%. And 2025, 2.0%. So again, getting back to what we would think of as normal. Let's look at some of the biggest ticket items in the budget. Uh, we start, of course, with uh, health care, which is always uh, the largest single item uh, in the budget. 40% of all program spending uh, and expected to be $81 billion in total health spending over the next fiscal year. $81 billion. You could, you could get yourself a Star Trek Enterprise for that, too, as well, couldn't uh, maybe. you? Maybe. I mean, the, the point I always make to some people is that, you know, the, the Ontario Ministry of Health alone spends more than several provinces do in total combined. <laughs> Very true. Second highest expenditure item, education, $34.7 billion. What's interesting, whenever I look at these numbers, I remind myself that 50 years ago, these numbers would have been reversed. Education, back in the day, got the lion's share because the population, of course, was much younger. We needed more schools. We had to build schools. We needed post-secondary institutions, colleges, universities. Today, we've got an older, sicker population, and so health care gets the biggest chunk of the budget by far. Community and Social Services and Children's Services comes in third with $19.4 billion. And one more. Let's give you the fourth highest expenditure line in the budget. And what's interesting about this is it's not a line ministry. It's interest on the debt, the fourth highest expenditure. We've borrowed a lot of money since Confederation in 1867, and it's got to be paid back. And the interest on that debt will cost taxpayers this year $14.1 billion. That's a lot of money. It is indeed. Uh, so we're going to drill down on a few more specific items uh, that were announced in the budget. Uh, cities have been asking for money for uh, homelessness prevention and supportive housing, particularly for Indigenous people. Uh, there is some money in the budget for that, about $202 million uh, that is going to be spent over the next two years. Lots of money for public transit infrastructure as well over the next decade. $70.5 billion allocated for that. That's everything from the new Ontario subway line in Toronto to the Scarborough subway, the Finch West LRT, and the list goes on and on. Uh, there is, of course, still money for highway construction, such as the 413 highway and the Bradford bypass uh, across the GTA. Uh, those projects are not uh, uncontroversial, as our listeners uh, are surely know. Uh, $28 billion for uh, those projects and more. Uh, we are going to talk about the 413 uh, a bit later in, in this podcast, so stay tuned. But I, I just, I have to say again, and it's not even the first year that this has been the case, but it still is remarkable to me that, you know, you and I 
have been around long enough to remember when you know public transportation struggled really to get even close to parity in funding from the provincial budget, even under governments that were very vocal about the need for transit spending. And now we have this government, which is spending you know almost two to one public transit uh, versus its highway spending. It's it, frankly, it's it's a remarkable place that we have arrived at in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want to let that go unremarked. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Glad you did. Now, I know I have already fulfilled my constitutional obligation to mention Bill Davis in this podcast, but I'm going to do one more because 50 years ago, Bill Davis's government created something called GAINS, G-A-I-N-S, and that's an acronym for Guaranteed Annual Income Support. It basically reduced seniors' poverty in the province by about 80% back in the day. It was additional money for seniors. I tell you, there were stories in the papers about seniors existing on cat food and that kind of thing. It was really quite appalling, the amount of seniors' poverty there was 50 years ago. And so the Davis government came forward with gains, and it made a huge difference. Now, the current-day Tories already increased the gains payments for seniors. But in this budget, they've announced that they're going to broaden the threshold of who's eligible for the program, and that should improve things for 100,000 more seniors in Ontario. But one caveat, it won't go into effect until July of next year. Uh, those are just some of the smaller announcements that we uh, found in, the, in our pouring over the budget. But when you add it all up, we are talking of a provincial budget of more than $200 billion in spending. Yeah. Now, let's get into some discussion about another huge item in the budget. And this is a line item that is bigger than the entire budgets for more than half a dozen ministries. It is a $6.5 billion line item in the budget. Yes, we spend $6.5 billion dollars as taxpayers subsidizing electricity usage in the province. A couple of things to say about this. First, I think people well understand that some power subsidization has to happen. We need low power rates to attract businesses. We get that. Lower income people have to be protected from escalating energy costs as well. We get that. But JMM, I opened my Toronto Hydro bill last Friday, and there it was in black and white. I got a $5.71 rebate on my nearly $50 electricity bill. This is for the charging station at my house for my Chevy Volt, which is an EV. So I plug it in every night, and I got a $5.71 rebate. And I shake my head every month when I look at my bill because I ask myself, why am I, a guy with a six-figure salary, having taxpayers subsidize my power usage? And there are other people who make a lot more money than I do and live in much bigger houses than I do. And the subsidies they get are much bigger and they don't need it either. Why this money isn't being redirected to more useful purposes, I will never know. Maybe you could give us some of the history here of how these subsidies came into effect in the first place and why they are still here. I I do really enjoy when Steve has a bee in his bonnet. <laughs> you can t- I, I got one about this, that's for sure. Yeah. So uh, the history about this is, uh, you know, pretty well known at this point. Um, you know, the McGuinty and Wynne governments under the uh, the Liberal Party, uh, they both made substantial investments in the electricity system uh, to both rebuild the grid and add renewables to it. Uh, people may remember that there was a, you know, a pretty substantial blackout, uh, you know, in 2002. Now, that wasn't directly the result of Ontario policymaking, the blackout started in the U.S., but it, it was true that 
the grid needed substantial investment by the time the Liberals win in 2003. You couple that with their promise to uh, phase out coal-fired generation, and uh, you know things got expensive. There were lots of new costs that get added to uh, the electricity bill for your average uh, Ontario customer. In order to offset that, the Liberals brought in uh, multiple different subsidies, uh, lots of attempts to try and uh, lessen the pain at the checkbook uh, for people who were uh, getting hit by those costs. Then, of course, the Liberal Party, how do we put this? did not satisfy all of the uh, people angry about uh, high electricity costs. They are defeated in 2018. The Tories uh, bring in a much broader uh, set of subsidies that have now substantially increased in cost. And one of the subsidies that the Tories uh, brought in that the Liberals did not have was uh, shifting the costs of so much of the renewable energy that the Liberals added to the supply mix. Uh, A lot of those costs have now been moved to the tax base instead of the hydro base. We're all still paying. (laughs) You're either paying as a ratepayer or a taxpayer. You're still paying, but uh, now it's showing up as a $6 billion line item in the provincial budget instead of hitting people every month uh, in their hydro bills. And I did talk to Peter Bethlen-Falvey, the Minister of Finance, on the agenda on budget night last Thursday about this, and he told me, he actually told me the thing that he already told the two of us on the podcast last week, which was that he had already started a file for next year's budget, 2024-25, and he considered this, I think he was joking a little bit, but he said, Steve, this is my first consultation for next year's budget, Uh, the first official consultation for 24-25. No commitment to do anything about it, but he did agree that it didn't make much sense. So note to self, check next year's budget to see whether these ridiculous subsidies persist. Neither the bee nor the bonnet are going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, One last thing that we should note in the context of, I I think, this government's uh, broad projections and its economic projections, the Ford government has put a lot of words behind the commitment to get 1.5 million new homes built in Ontario within a decade. And if the projections in their budget are any indication, we are not currently on track to make that target. In fact, uh, the budget shows housing starts falling uh, in coming years, which is definitely not what you would want to see. Uh, I think it's fair to say the government knows that this is a file they will need to do more on and soon. But we didn't see a lot of it in the actual budget legislation. You know, there's always the minister's speech, and then there's a budget bill that gets introduced, and that does some of the work of of uh, implementing the changes announced in the budget. Uh, there is uh, no no major new housing policy uh, either in in the budget document or in the legislation. Hmm. All right, let's round off this section where we discuss the budget with a question from a listener named Arav, who writes. What are some of the things you wanted to see in the budget, and what are some things you didn't expect? Okay, I think we should start by just saying, as journalists, you know, I'm not sure we should be weighing in on what we wanted to see in the budget, but in ter- well, I guess we could space go on- Space program. I was just going to say, <laughs> we could go on the record and say the, the space program to build the second generation of the Starship Enterprise, we could probably get our heads around that. But in terms of what was unexpected, that we can discuss. Uh, Okay, let's start on that. How about for you? Any big surprises in the budget? I think the only thing that we haven't really touched on is that, you know, Toronto and and some other big cities, but I think Toronto was loudest about this, uh, they were really hoping for more of... There's no other way to say it except a bailout uh, from the COVID-19 impacts that they are still dealing with. Uh, there wasn't really anything that we've seen so far in the budget. Uh, Toronto is facing a nearly $1 billion deficit this year. Uh, and 
there is some stuff. We, we talked about the $200 million for supportive housing, but there's nothing on the scale that would balance the city's books. Obviously, Toronto alone is not going to get all of that $200 million, and it would not solve their problem even if it did. The province says it is waiting to see what is in the federal budget, which, uh, if you are listening to the podcast on the day it's released, that will be announced later this afternoon on Tuesday, March 28th. I guess one thing I'd say is that the one thing this budget had in it in spades, which I have not seen in previous budgets, are enormous amounts of money put into so-called contingency funds or reserve funds. And these are sort of rainy day funds where ministers of finance like to sock away a lot of money just in case, you know, you never know what's going to come up. Usually you put a billion dollars, at the most two billion in a contingency fund. And I note that the treasurer this year put two billion in for next year and four billion in for the year after that. So he, you know, that's a lot of money to sock away for a rainy day. But as we well know, thanks to pandemics, and court decisions that may not go your way on Bill 124, that may require an $8 billion check being written to uh, public servants across Ontario, uh, sometimes you do get those surprises coming forward. Uh, and if they don't end up spending those uh, reserves, uh, that all gets, uh, effectively, if, it, if that money doesn't get spent, it will just add to the surpluses that they are already posting and could end up making an argument for uh, tax cuts right before an election. <laughs> You're so cynical. I can't believe anybody would do that. It's uh, it's made me so jaundiced here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that, on to issue two. Let's set up this next section with an email from listener Josh, who writes, Hi, Steve and John Michael. I really love the podcast and newsletter. In particular, the deep dives John Michael takes on the nitty gritty of legislation and regulation. With that in mind, I have some questions following the federal environment minister's announcement that he would take steps towards halting development in the Greenbelt. What is the scope of the Federal Species at Risk Act? How does the jurisdiction differ between the Federal Species at Risk Act and the Provincial Endangered Species Act? Where and how else can federal tools be used to influence land use planning decisions in the province? Thanks, Josh. Josh, thank you for that email. Lots of specificity on that one. Let's give a bit of context here before we dive into those questions. Last week, the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Guibault, announced a new study of so-called at-risk species near Rouge National Urban Park in Scarborough. This study could derail Doug Ford's plans to build housing near the park, despite the Premier saying at a news conference that it's full speed ahead with all of his plans. So, okay, let's recap here. How does the Species at Risk Act factor into this fight? So the Federal Species at Risk Act makes it a federal offense to, quote, kill, harm, harass, capture, or take an animal that is listed as a protected species under the act. Uh, More relevant to this issue is it also protects the habitats of endangered species, making it illegal to, once again, quote, damage or destroy the residents of one or more individuals of a wildlife species. This is important because, of course, building homes on land that is currently greenfield land will inherently disrupt the habitat of some animals. If the feds can prove that the development will disrupt the habitat of animals protected by the Species at Risk Act, they may have legal grounds to intervene. Okay, that's the Federal Act. How does the Federal Act compare to Ontario's Endangered Species Act? 
I hope our listeners are ready for another lesson in Canadian federalism <laughs> because that's what I've got for them today. Well, we've become accustomed to getting ready for those lessons from you, so it's good. <laughs> it's all good. The Federal Species at Risk Act does not apply everywhere in all cases. Section 34 of the law explicitly says that the federal law does not apply on lands in a province unless it is federally owned land, mm. like a national park, or we're talking specifically about a fish or migratory bird species. I have the feeling you're going to tell me why fish and migratory birds are so special here, besides the fact that you just are a fish and bird guy, you know, at your foundation. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, When it comes to land use, construction, road building, in fact, most environmental impacts, really, the provinces have the primary jurisdiction. Federal law mostly applies in areas of federal jurisdiction. So what's federal jurisdiction here? Well, fisheries are a federal matter thanks to Section 9112 of the Constitution. And so are protections for birds that cross the U.S.-Canadian border thanks to a treaty signed between the United Kingdom and the U.S back in 1916, (laughs) appropriately called the Migratory Bird Treaty. (laughs) Now, Canada didn't have its own foreign policy back then. Our treaties were determined by the British Parliament, but the precedent binds the federal government to this day. Okay, so this is such a McGrath story. Let's (laughs) let's keep going. The Federal Species at Risk Act may not actually apply to the Rouge Park unless the federal government can demonstrate a harm to a species of fish or migratory bird. Have I got that right? It would be the clearest way for within the law for the feds to to find a way to intervene in the provincial policy here. Because we're not talking about building houses in the park itself. That would be mm-hmm. something that the federal government would, would clearly have power over. The issue is whether building homes on land near the park could disrupt the habitat of species that should be protected by federal law. Uh, so... There is also one other section, and I think this is a bit less likely, but there is a section of the law that does allow the federal minister to intervene outside of the usual areas of usual jurisdiction. Quote, if the minister is of the opinion that the laws of the province do not effectively protect the species or the residences of its individuals. Mm. I think you can imagine, though, that would be a pretty big step for the federal government to take. Well, yeah, because they've been trying to get along with the province and the province with the feds. They're all trying to get along so much these days that uh, that would be a very big step. Are there other federal steps that could be taken to stop a province from building homes in an area that the feds would like to protect? It turns out the answer is a resounding maybe. (laughs) And I say that because the Supreme Court of Canada heard arguments just last week about this very matter. The Impact Assessment Act was challenged by Alberta's government uh, in that province's highest court, which found it unconstitutional because it infringes on provincial jurisdiction. So says the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal. The federal government appealed that verdict to the Supreme Court of Canada and various provinces and other groups made their arguments to the learned judges last week. Did Ontario have a position on this? Uh, Wouldn't you know it? The government did, in fact, make its feelings known. Uh (laughs) Not about the Rouge Park issue, uh, but about the federal government's decision to intervene against the Highway 413 Mm. uh, in the Western GTA. See, we mentioned it earlier. We're we're bringing it back. Bringing it full circle now. Okay, got it. (laughs) Ontario argued that if federal law allows the government of Canada to override provincial policy over something that is as traditionally central to provincial governments as highway building, then it is unconstitutionally broad and needs to be struck down. Uh, The Supreme Court did not deliver its decision last week, so for now we have to be a bit patient and see what, if any, limits there are on the federal government's powers to intervene in cases like Highway 413 and potentially in the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Preserve. Could have a good old-fashioned FedProv showdown here. Haven't had one of those in a long time. Yeah, get my, I don't know, jug and my banjo. (laughs) 
I'm stopping this now. On to issue three. Over the weekend, Marilee Fullerton, MPP for Connecticut Carlton and the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services, resigned. Michael Parsa, the MPP for Aurora, Oak Ridges, Richmond Hill, will be stepping into her place in that portfolio. I have to say, in all the years I've covered politics, I cannot remember a cabinet minister the day after the budget not only resigning from cabinet, but also from politics altogether. Certainly, lots of people are wondering what's going on here. Fullerton had her share of critics due to two of the files she held uh, during her time in cabinet, long-term care and children, community, and social services, uh, the ministry that deals with uh, supports for, in particular, uh, children with autism, uh, has been a very public issue for this government. Uh, Neither of these are easy files for any government, uh, but we don't need to remind people how deadly the province's long-term care homes were during the worst parts of the pandemic. Uh, Fullerton's departure from provincial politics doesn't seem to be about the more than 3,000 dead from COVID-19 in long-term care. Uh, And it doesn't seem to be about the provincial supports for children with autism. So uh, I'm kind of drawing a blank here. Uh, Steve, do you want to give us a historical perspective on this? Well, let me just put it this way. I, I think we should all be a bit suspicious when a minister quits politics like this, with this kind of timing, and no explanation given other than I'm leaving for personal reasons. I must say, I I mean, I've read a lot of the coverage of this since uh, the resignation was made public, and I think I have a different take on um, Minister Fullerton, the former Minister Fullerton's departure. She has, as you pointed out, been in the eye of the tornado on both the COVID and autism issues. But uh, let me say, you can only be as impactful as the system will let you be. And here's some background here. This is a woman who was quite a catch as a candidate before the 2018 election. I mean, a medical doctor for more than 25 years. She was on the governing council of the Ontario Medical Association and the Canadian Medical Association. She wrote columns about health care in the Ottawa Citizen. So she had some profile as well. I've been nosing around with various sources, and I hasten to add, I have not spoken with Marilee Fullerton about any of this. I put that on the record. But she did ring, I've heard through the grapevine, she did ring the alarm bell when she was the long-term care minister, well aware of the fact that seniors were going to suffer disproportionately. And I'm told she had a devil of a time trying to get senior officials to focus on this. Remember, she was the long-term care minister, but she reported to the Minister of Health. So it was challenging in the early days of COVID to get anybody's attention to do something on the long-term care file because it was such a smaller file compared to everything else. Similarly, when she had the autism file, everything I heard suggested she did a good job for the few thousand people who were lucky enough to be covered by the programs in place and just couldn't get enough support for the tens of thousands of others who were waiting on waiting lists for improved services. So I think you've got to take all of that into account when considering her time in public life. You know, I think it's notable that we're talking about this uh, the week after the budget, because I think other ministers who have held these same portfolios could tell you that, you know, the struggle is so much just, can you get the government to spend the money that's needed? And if you can't do that, you are going to, uh, at minimum, disappoint people. And at worst, of course, you know, and long-term care is not the only ministry that you can say this about, but if uh, resources are not available, people can die. I think I agree with you here, Steve, because I do also think that Fullerton, you know, she held two of the most difficult files uh, in the Ford government. And I think also, aside from the difficulties that she faced 
implementing policy the way that she she might have preferred. There was also just an issue. You mentioned that she was a a, a good catch for this government in the 2018 election. You know, she's now held these two very difficult files, uh, one after the other. And I don't think that there was a lot of indication that she was going to get promoted into, let's say, the upper ranks of cabinet uh, anytime soon. And so do you just stay in a job that is, even if even if you love the work, it's difficult work. Uh, do you just stay in that job for another six months to a year? Maybe there's a cabinet shuffle. Maybe there isn't. Maybe there's a cabinet shuffle, but you don't get moved. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of things that can happen or not happen. And it just, I, I could understand um, feeling like there was nowhere to go but out. Well, here's the bottom line. I don't think you resign the day after the budget comes out, and I don't think you quit politics altogether less than a year after you've asked the public to reelect you, unless you're really unhappy. And I think she was miserable. I think she just was not having a good time down there anymore, and she'd had enough, and so she quit. Okay, before we end our podcast, here is the return of our semi-irregular segment called Quote of Note where we highlight noteworthy comments in Ontario politics. This week, we've got another great example of where you stand depends on where you sit. Less than a year ago, Doug Ford and former Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca faced off in the 2022 election campaign, and it got plenty nasty. But that was then. This is now. Del Duca now is the mayor of Vaughan, and the premier was all compliments last week at an announcement in Vaughan. I also want to recognize my friend, Mayor Stephen Del Duca. You know, uh, Mayor, I, I appreciate all the work we've, we're going to do in the, in the future, but the Mayor and I got together uh, shortly after the provincial election, and I'm, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke here, Mayor. I told you, one of the best guys to deal with out of all the mayors I've ever worked with. You've got to come over for breakfast uh, pretty soon one more time. Have you ever seen Stephen and I at a, at a box of Tim Horton donuts? They're done, I'll tell you. Doug Ford in Vaughan last week. Bet you never thought you'd hear the Premier say that about his former tormentor. You know, I think I've got two thoughts on this. One is that uh, nobody ever loves a former MPP more than when they uh, have moved outside of provincial politics altogether, and they are (laughs) safely no longer going to challenge you. Uh, The other thing that occurred to me, you know, I I was thinking about debate night last year and uh, the the four party leaders that we had here at TVO for that debate. And I just realizing, boy, you know, Mike Schreiner is now the senior party leader. Yes, he is. (laughs) At Queen's Park. Yes, he is. He's the one who has held a a party leadership post longer than uh, anyone else. And um, it's the smallest of the parties at Queens Park. <laughs> One seat, uh, yes. But yes, uh, Mike Schreiner, a senior political leader in provincial politics. There you go. This, of course, not the first time that Ford has met one of his former political rivals under happier circumstances. Just a few weeks ago, he was with Hamilton's new mayor, Andrea Horvath, at an announcement in The Hammer. And, you know, I got to thinking about this. If Mitzi Hunter lands the job of mayor of Toronto, she the current MPP from Scarborough, She's running for mayor of Toronto. Ford could find himself surrounded by former opposition MPPs as mayors across much of Ontario. Remember, there's Bonnie Crombie in Mississauga. She's a former liberal MP, maybe future Ontario liberal leadership contestant. Brampton's Patrick Brown is there as well. Ford ran against him for Ontario PC party leader. We've talked about Horvath. We've talked about Del Duca. The list is getting longer, JMM. 
Speaking of Horvath, uh, we can also close out this week's episode by noting that NDP MPP Sarah Jama took her seat in the legislature on Monday, uh, despite some controversies about her campaign in Hamilton Center, uh, where uh, she was, of course, accused of anti-Semitism, apologized for some remarks to the Jewish community. Uh, she got the traditional welcome that new MPPs all get as they are brought into the legislature for the first time. Uh, MPPs on both sides of the chamber applauded her when she was presented to the speaker. Uh, and of course, Ted Arnock gave her the, the traditional uh, welcome. Uh, the member may take her seat. Let the honorable member take her seat. Now, this is interesting because, of course, she uses a wheelchair to get around. So, And this, I, I think, would have been the first time that that's ever happened. Uh, yes. Uh, we, we talked about this a bit. I, was that last week's episode or the yeah. week before that? But yes. Uh, and uh, Ted Arnott, the speaker, did uh, run through some of the way that the rules uh, are being adapted uh, for her in the House. Uh, she will be allowed to raise her hand when she wants to uh, indicate that she wants to speak and debate. And she will also be allowed to raise her hand to indicate how she is voting on any bill or motion. Gotcha. And that is the On Poly podcast for March 28th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletter. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on about the good fortune of being finance minister when the deficit comes in at $17 billion less than you feared it would be. Good timing, eh? You know, I'd also be willing to find a way to spend $17 billion. I would do it for much less than... 80 or 200 billion. What a generous soul you are. <laughs> Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. You can write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tejvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.